and welcome back to the Eclipse Nation podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Merchant, and I am joined today by Ben Golliver of the Washington Post, who is joining us from the NBA bubble. Ben, the Clippers just lost yesterday. Um, any reason why we should feel good about this? <laughs> I don't know how to spin it. I'll be honest. I've been excited for the Lakers-Clippers Western Conference final since the moment that we were in Las Vegas all the way back last summer, more than a year ago when Kawhi and Paul George announced their power play and we show up at the gym at summer league the next day and Patrick Beverly strutting around and kind of like, you know, waving it in uh, LeBron James and Anthony Davis's face. We get the opening night game. We get the Christmas game. We get the opening night of the bubble game. We get all the way up to the finish line. One win away from the matchup that everyone's been waiting for, especially the television executives, by the way. They've been crossing their fingers and praying for Lakers Clippers to just draw all these monster ratings. And what happens? The Clippers go 0-3 in possible closeout games. They blow a 19-point lead, a 16-point lead, a 12-point lead. They blew the 12-point lead so bad, they wound up losing by 15 points, which is almost impossible I think in games five, six, and seven, they were outscored by 35 points in the fourth quarters combined. That's 35 points in 36 minutes. For the analytics people out there, they understand this. For the non-analytics people, that's atrocious. You got destroyed when it really mattered most. And I think it's the kind of loss where if you're the Clippers, everything seems so difficult and confusing right now because Kawhi didn't show up when it mattered. Paul George didn't show up when it mattered. The depth, which was one of their biggest strengths all season long, started to collapse. Doc Rivers, championship coach, didn't necessarily look like it at that point. So I think it raises all sorts of questions. I know you asked for something positive. I think the only positive I can come up with is that Montrez Harrell struggled so badly in the bubble that he probably cost himself enough money that the Clippers can keep him in free agency. Is that a positive? Did I do it? Montrez Harrell cost himself enough money that the Clippers can keep him in free agency. That's not where I was expecting to go, honestly, after game seven. I, I thought he cost himself some money. I assumed it was because uh, some lottery team was going to have to pay him now instead of the Clippers. But uh, Oh, you don't even want him back? Wow. <laughs> well, I don't know. Look, it's tough. If I'm the Clippers, I actually would try to keep him because he's been so important for them the last couple of years. And, look, mm-hmm. there was a lot of extenuating circumstances for him personally. You know, I had done an interview and a story on him like three years ago. And the only person he wanted to talk about during that story was his grandmother. And I'm like, hey, by the way, you know, you're having this giant breakout season, right? Like you're now in the mix for sixth man of the year and most improved. And the only person he wanted to talk, talk about was his grandmother. So my heart goes out to him for sure. I think that when the Clippers look back on this entire experience, where did it go wrong? I think that they were pointing to things like conditioning issues and lack of chemistry. And I think a huge part of that was they needed as much time as possible for the two new stars to mesh with the holdovers, right? Trez, mm-hmm. Lou, Patrick Beverly, how much shared time can those guys to get, get together? Even Landry Shaman, how much time can those guys get together? Zubak. And unfortunately, because of, you know, multiple funerals, because of Beverly's injury, they just didn't get there. So I guess I say, uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you can keep Trez, keep him. Um, you know, judge him by his entire body of work, not just these last couple of games where Nikola Jokic just went absolutely nuts on him. But I do kind of worry on his behalf. He was set for a monster payday before the bubble. Had the NBA just not restarted, he would be one of the top paid free agents this summer. And I really do wonder what his market look like looks like now. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can start there, like uh, what the Clippers look like going forward after this, because I think we all assumed that the Clippers were just going to bring the band back. 
you know, Jermichael Green obviously has his player option, so he gets to decide whether or not he comes back to the Clippers next season. Uh, I haven't dug enough into the free agency numbers to see if he's going to get more money elsewhere, if he's going to, you know, have to stay with the Clippers. But is this the kind of loss that makes you reconsider what the roster needs to look like going forward? I'm not sure you want to panic, but you're definitely a little bit more nervous than you were a week ago by far. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, Paul George's messaging was, hey, we just need more time together. And, you know, that's definitely true. They needed more time together. But part of the problem with that is Paul George is on a new team every two years. Like, <laughs> I feel like that. I mean, he's just always bouncing from place to place. He's not necessarily patient P, right? I mean, he, he's got this knack for going from spot to spot to spot. And so I think it just kind of puts them on the clock now because he's got one year left on his contract. Kawhi's got one year left on his contract. Obviously they're committed to the area and they want to be there, but the entire premise of their partnership was that Kawhi needs to be good enough to be the best player on a title team. And Paul George needs to be good enough to be the second best player on a title team. And what we saw in this series against Denver in the moments that mattered the most, neither one of those things was true. Kawhi just did not step up. I was baffled by his play to me, the, the worst stat in the entire box score, and this is a brutal box score. Serena, put sunglasses on uh, before you look at this thing, okay? Do not expose your eyes directly to it. The worst stat on the whole thing was one free throw combined for Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. Would LeBron James and Anthony Davis ever in a closeout game? Would any Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum in a closeout game? Pick your superstar duo. Are they ever going to find themselves in a dogfight where the offense isn't really working, where Denver's making this big run and they're just settling for mid-range jumpers and fallaway threes and shooting the ball up the side of the backboard and turning the ball over? Never in a million years. They're not doing that. They're, they're putting their head down. They're going to the basket. They're manufacturing points other ways. And so this is not to overreact and say, oh, the Clippers title window is over before it ever started. I don't think that's true, but I do think it really puts them on the clock for next year because – if they were to suffer a similar fate next season, we've seen superstar guys, they just get the wandering eye. They start looking around and saying, what other landing pad is there for me out here? And given how much you gave up to get these guys in terms of draft picks and Shea Gilgis-Alexander and everything else, it really would put the Clippers in a tough spot. Yeah, let's get back to Kawhi for a second, because I think the expectation coming in was, yeah, maybe Paul George hasn't done this before, but Kawhi Leonard was in a game seven last year. He took over the Toronto Raptors against the Philadelphia 76ers. He took 39 shots in that game, including the one we remember most clearly, right? Uh, and it didn't seem like he was the type of player who would just let a team collapse around him, right? Like the Raptors had that Toronto curse, you know, heading into that season. That, that was the team that didn't know how to win. And all of a sudden, four bounces later, they did because Kawhi Leonard made it so. So is it just that the Clippers didn't provide him as enough support as the Raptors did or was Kawhi Leonard meaningfully different this year than he was last year? Like, that's what I can't wrap my head around. And like, it just it boggles it, it's my an mind. Awesome, it's an awesome question. It's like when guys get the clutch label, we just expect them to be clutch absolutely forever in every situation. And that's probably not how life works, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, you can imagine you, you're a reliable family member, but no one's perfect. You know, you, you forget to take it out to the trash or whatever else it might be. And, you know, every, all the stories are changing. Now your brother's mad. Now your dad's angry, right? Um, I think for me, 
Kawhi Leonard never looked particularly happy or comfortable in the bubble, really from the start. And I view that largely from just his off-court demeanor, which was kind of calm and level like it usually is. But you compare him to like LeBron and AD joking around. I just didn't see the interpersonal connection with Kawhi and his teammates ever develop. And I think that's part of the problem. I think Toronto did a better job of, of working him into their culture and not putting too much on his shoulders. The Clippers needed somebody to step up and be the leader. Kawhi wasn't ready to do that. I mean, in a key moment, Patrick Beverly, who's their vocal leader, fouls out with 10 minutes to go in game six. Are you kidding me? Completely inexcusable. Um, you're never going to see Kyle Lowry in that situation do that. And I think that's a key difference between those two teams. Uh, but, you know, kind of going back to Kawhi, I put a lot of this on him because he was just a mess in late game situations throughout the bubble. Remember the first game? against the Lakers. He double clutches, passes out to Paul George. You know, it's a hospital pass. There's not enough time for Paul George to do anything except for get made look bad because he was indecisive and he didn't want to shoot over LeBron. You have the play against the Phoenix Suns where he's guarding Ricky Rubio in the corner. He stunts towards Devin Booker. Everyone in the gym, all 14 people there, know Devin Booker's going to shoot that shot. Instead, Kawhi Leonard goes back to Ricky Rubio in the corner, who's never going to get the ball, and Devin Booker hits a game winner. Uh, you go to Luka Doncic's miracle three-pointer off the dribble. I mean, one of the best shots of the entire bubble. Kawhi is guarding him, and he soft switches and lets Reggie Jackson get absolutely tortured by Luka off the dribble before hitting that shot. These are all terrible late-game decisions. And you could say, okay, well, this guy was supposed to be this clutch guy who always comes through. He should have been stepping up and taking over in those moments. And you could also say, well, he hasn't had enough time with this group. He hasn't had enough time with Doc to know exactly whose responsibility it is in those situations. To me, I came into this season expecting huge things from Kawhi because he had been so good in last year's playoffs. And he was a letdown. It's not like he was terrible throughout the whole thing. He had a number of really nice scoring moments um, in this series against Denver. But in those kind of key moments that I'm describing, he cost his team games. He was the difference between wins and losses. I think letdown is, is quite the strong word. I mean, are you referring to only Kawhi's play in the bubble or the season as a whole with the Clippers? Because I think if we're just, you know, looking pre-hiatus, there's really nothing about Kawhi Leonard that could be described as a letdown. He was every bit as good as advertised for the Clippers coming into this experience. And even in the seeding games uh, through the Dallas series, yeah, you know, he had those weird late game gaps, but he put the Clippers in the kinds of positions where they really didn't have to be in late game situations, right? He was so good against Dallas. I think you could make the argument that he was the best player through the first round of the playoffs, just in terms of his impact on both ends of the floor. And yeah, you know, the Clippers had communication issues on defense that he was not immune to, and he was arguably responsible for a lot of those gaps. But to me, it didn't really seem like until these final two games that we sort of lost that Kawhi luster. And I wonder if it comes back to just like, the chemistry of it all, because like you said, Kawhi didn't seem to be in the greatest mood in the bubble, you know, compared to the other players. Uh, we've noticed throughout the season that the Clippers don't seem to like each other as much as a championship contender would expect, right? Even games where they comfortably win, it's just a, a mood that is not befitting of a team that is this successful. Uh, and yet they still carry themselves with this air of like, they're the favorites. They're the ones who are supposed to get the job done. It's this, just this really weird dissonance of having Supreme expectations, supreme confidence in what you're supposed to do, and then never really walking the walk. I think you wrote about this today about how they were all bark and no bite, which I think is a really good way of describing it. 
Well, this is brilliant podcasting by you because you're so politely pushing back that you you know you're going to make me tee off by doing <laughs> it. You know, you know I'm going to flip out and just want to scream and yell, and you're just doing it so brilliantly like a surgeon. Um, so here's the thing. I agree. Kawhi had a really good season. He probably got overlooked and even like an MVP conversation because people stick him with, oh, he doesn't play enough games and, and all that stuff. Um, he was really solid. When the Clippers looked good in the playoffs – and there were some moments like 154 points against Dallas, right? I mean, they looked really good at times. Kawhi looked really good um, in those times. I mean, there's no coincidence, you know, where they're, what's being driven. I think the problem is, you know, whether you want to call it, you know, chemistry issues or personality conflicts or whatever else, I'm not sure his teammates ever really figured out who he was, right? I think the Clippers organization gave him a wide berth. They really catered to him. They bought all those backpacks. They supported all his efforts, right? They made him feel really empowered. They let him take two hours after games to get ready for the media. I'm slightly exaggerating, but not really, right? They made him feel completely comfortable. But even Paul George said it last night, you know, they're still working on trying to, you know, figure out their rhythm, their two-man game together. They've had more than a year together. They Remember, they came into camp early to start building that chemistry. They wanted to win a title the whole way. They had that big community rally in South Los Angeles in July, 2019. And where doc told everybody, we want to be the winners, AKA we're going out there trying to win a title. And what we got at the end was just not nearly good enough. They should not have lost that Denver Nuggets team. And people are going to say, Oh, you're being disrespectful to Denver. I'm not. The Clippers are better on paper. They were better for large stretches of that series. They got up, they got these huge leads time after time for a reason. They have amazing talent. And Lou Williams said it, we had the talent to get this done. We didn't have the chemistry to get it done. And in those situations, I always believe the responsibility falls on two people uh, when it comes to chemistry. I think it falls on the coach and I think it falls on the team's best player. In the NBA, that's just how it works. You play so few guys, you're relying upon so few different people to, you know, advance in a playoff series, right? And, you know, to me, there's definitely some criticisms that people would have for Doc Rivers in terms of, you know, why does he keep overseeing these teams that kind of collapsed? Um, you know, Doc Rivers pointed it back at the players and saying there was conditioning issues. Guys just weren't in shape, weren't ready to get it done. Um, but to me, a lot of it falls on Kawhi Leonard because, you know, even that conditioning issue, for example, they're talking about load management all season. They're trying to save Kawhi Leonard and Paul George for the biggest moments, right? They're talking about win the weight during the shutdown, right? Where it's like, hey, we're getting everybody engaged. We're making sure they're in great shape. We're going to have them out there. And you get out there in the biggest moment against a younger team that had gone seven games, a less experienced team that had gone seven games the previous round. You're into game seven, the fourth quarter. And the shots that they're getting are just not good enough. No free throw attempts, contested jumpers. A lot of them are missing by a lot. No effective counters from either Paul George or Kawhi Leonard kind of getting to the basket or doing something a little bit more aggressive. Um, you know, no setting up really for their teammates. I mean, they combined, as I mentioned, for one free throw and seven turnovers. How is that possible? You know, and that's just not good enough for those two guys. Yeah, some of those shots were really, really bad. I mean, I feel like the Paul George three-pointer off the side of the backboard is going to get the most attention, but Kawhi was missing bunnies around the rim. Like he had this one play where he cut directly to the basket and just had a layup and gacked it. I mean, Jermichael Green had that one dunk attempt that skied all the way back to the other side of the court. I mean, and then Paul threw it away. He <laughs> tracked it down and threw it away. It killed me. Now that was like the signature play of their their entire postseason. It reminded me actually of the Rockets. The signature play of the Rockets run was when Westbrook bricked the three. Harden mm -hmm. didn't get back on defense. LeBron threw the touchdown pass to Anthony Davis. 
P.J. Tucker, the only guy on the team who tries, hustles back and fouls A.D. while he dunks it for an and one. So P.J. Tucker gets no thanks for all of his hard effort. And Westbrook and Harden are just standing around saying, what just happened? That was the signature play of the Rockets uh, series. But I think you're right. The signature play of the Clippers series was the blown dunk, unnecessarily flashy dunk that bounces all the way back in the backcourt for Paul George to hustle down and retrieve it and then immediately throw it away. It's like, come on. There's got to be more poise than that, right, Sabrina? Come on. You're being nice to these guys. You're defending them. But I know you're a little bit angsty about it too, right? I mean, it's at the point where you start to believe that there's a real Clippers curse going on here. Uh, Because – in my opinion, in game six, they just missed a lot of good shots. Like they were Kawhi Leonard getting into the mid range, you know, Paul George getting free for open threes. Uh, Lou Williams is missing everything around the rim, which I don't just attribute to conditioning. Something was going on there. Uh, I think uh, John Hollinger tweeted this in game five, like the Clippers history is starting to check in. And uh, we just saw them appear to be weighed down by the moment. Like Paul George says they were not, you know, burdened by the previous two games. It feels impossible to believe that to me because they're not just burdened by the history of those two games before them. They're burdened by, you know, going 0-7 in conference finals, advancing games to this point. They're burdened by, you know, the Clippers just being the Clippers and Doc Rivers being the only coach in NBA history to blow multiple 3-1 leads even before this series. Uh, you were in the building. Did you feel anything like that we couldn't see on television? Like what, what did the bench look like during these situations? What, what did the Clippers look like? The scary part was how unsurprising it was, right? I mean, I picked the Clippers to win the title. I think I've been one of the Clippers' biggest defenders all season long. I've been the guy who says, look at how well they play in their best moments. When Kawhi does take over in the fourth quarter, these guys are unstoppable. Look how many perimeter defensive weapons they have. They match up with everyone, right? They can play big. They can play small. They can play in between. Um, They've got an awesome closing lineup. I think I even called their closing lineup early in the season the coma lineup because it wasn't quite as good as the, the death, death lineup, <laughs> but it was pretty darn good, right, where you've got the shooters in the corners and Kawhi's going to work and just plenty of space for everybody to operate. And, um, and yet, after you see it in game five and after you see it in game six, you go into game seven as somebody who's kind of picked them and you have zero confidence. They're up 12. The fan section, God bless their hearts, Clippers fan section in the building the wives and girlfriends, did an amazing job of trying to root these guys through. I mean, they, they had the faith. As someone who picked them and was a more neutral observer, zero faith. 12-point <laughs> lead, zero faith. You're just kind of waiting and waiting. And it wasn't even necessarily that, like, okay, Jokic and Murray are, like, the world's greatest closers. And so they're going to just, you know, kind of, um, you know, take this thing over and get it done. You're waiting for the Clippers to shoot themselves in the foot, to find a way to screw it up. And there was a lot of standing around and looking at each other, confusion. You know, I think that people probably, you know, this is me projecting, but I think that there was some degree of guys thinking like, wait a minute, Kawhi is supposed to be saving us here. Like he's, he's not saving us. So then what do we do? And I think in that situation, I actually give Paul George some credit because I think he felt that. And so he started to press a little bit. He felt like, okay, well, I'm going to need to be the guy to do this. And that can result in some, you know, ugly looking shots and that can result in him kind of getting mocked on Twitter and everything else. But I do at least give him credit for kind of sensing the the game situation and trying to do a little bit more. Um, but it was just confusion and panic and it slipped away from them so fast. I mean, to go from 12 up to 15 down, it was just t- even 20 down at one point. Um, you know, they, they had you know no idea what to hit them. It was kind of like a hurricane. And 
It goes for their coaching staff too. I mean, they just, they didn't have any answers. They couldn't figure out how to defend Jokic. They, and the, the nice job they had done on Murray early in the series, you know, he just kind of sort of figured them out, right? And, and by the end of it, he's kind of getting wherever he wants. He's hitting the big shots. And it's so funny to me that Jokic and Murray are significantly younger than Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. They're also less experienced in the playoffs by a lot, but they both looked more comfortable. They were both more efficient. They were both more effective. They were both more focused. They were much more in tune with each other. And that's a little bit scary when you look forward to like, what does the Clippers future look like? Because you were banging on these two guys. You know, some people were trying to make the like poor man's Michael and Scotty uh, comparison. Right. I and mean, that was kind of the hope. And on paper, you know, you look at, you know, they're incredible wing defenders. So you, you can kind of see where some of that comes from, but uh, you start to look at the Western conference landscape. There's an awful lot of good teams coming. I mean, Dallas is going to be better next year. Denver's going to be right there in the mix. They've proven some stuff. I didn't believe in them at all this year. They've definitely proven some stuff here over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, the Lakers are going to be back. And so you just sort of wonder, are the Clippers still going to be in that mix next season where we start to talk about them as, oh, yeah, they're absolutely a tier A title contender? Or do we move them back a little bit in, in the hierarchy? I think that this kind of loss, not only that they lost, but how they lost. I mean, this was the biggest disappointment in franchise history. It was a spectacular collapse. But it was like the Russian nesting doll of spectacular collapses, where there was like spectacular collapses within other spectacular collapses as it was happening, right? I I don't know how that doesn't have a carryover effect in the next season. The thing is, before we got into the bubble, I was willing to just write off anything that happened in Orlando because the circumstances were so strange. You know, they weren't going to get the benefit of home court advantage in the first at least two rounds of the playoffs. And then we all thought they were going to be playing in Staples Center for the third round anyway. So it seemed very easy to write off any potential long-term implications of what was going to happen just because this was an entirely unprecedented situation that the entire NBA was walking into. And yet the way it all went down feels so very Clippers. Like this could have happened. You want to take it all back, don't you? You wanted to give them a pass, but now you don't want to give them a pass anymore, do you? I just can't give a team that blows a 3-1 lead like this a pass. It just seems impossible because they had the series in their grasp multiple times. I don't think they ever had it in game seven. I'm with you. I think the majority of people predicting the outcome of the series still thought that the Clippers were going to get things done in game seven just because they had the talent. They had Kawhi Leonard. It seemed like he was going to be the difference maker between those two teams. And he wasn't. And I don't think that's a, that's something you can like bank on going forward because I do believe that his body of postseason work suggests that he's going to be a different player in the majority of situations than he was in that game seven. But everything else that transpired from the Clippers just felt like you said, so unsurprising that this was an outcome that we should have predicted that for some reason we glossed over the fact that they had all of these meaningful holes in their roster, like holes in their team chemistry heading into this. And I mean, why did we overrate the Clippers so much? Like what, what led into that? Well, look, I, first of all, I think they deserve the credit for what they did during the regular season. You made a good point about how, how nice uh, Kawhi played overall. And they were also starting to come together right before the break. And, you know, you look at all their indicators, whether it's record, point differential, you know, net rating with their best group, all that stuff was on track. And they were finally healthy coming in, right? So I think that they deserve some benefit of the doubt coming in the bubble. I do think that they had more than an average amount of extenuating circumstances. I mean, the Lou Williams situation shook them up 
no way around it. Same deal with the Daniel House situation in Houston. That shook them up. You know, when you're a team, you feel like you're all in it together. And then one guy goes and breaks the rules and now it's all at your expense. You know how like when you're kids, like if someone, you know, screws up, the whole team has to run laps, right? And then everybody just gets really mad at that guy. That's that exact situation except for millionaire athletes in the bubble, right? And it's even worse because they can't see their family and everybody's frustrated. So I think that that was a real deal. Montrez Harrell, I mean, to me, he's still grieving, right? And so mm-hmm. I think you've got to be understanding there. Um, you look at Beverly injury, they didn't have a replacement for Patrick Beverly. You're not going to win a title with Reggie Jackson playing major minutes. It's just absolutely impossible. I don't care if Kawhi Leonard is a superhero, like a legitimate superhero. He's not dragging Reggie Jackson to a title, not happening. So those are all major issues that they had that not every team had. And then I also think, um, you know, some of the, they just didn't work the kinks out as they were going along. You know, you kind of hope that, okay, you can build up some reps and, and just hang on until things get serious. But they were struggling in a lot of late game situations through the seeding round. And, you know, even against the, the Mavericks, they didn't always look great in those particular spots. They were at their best when they were playing from ahead. Right. And, you know, that's a really tough way to, to way to win a title. You know, it's very difficult to win four series back to back to back to back, always just controlling the game and never getting yourself in a tight spot. So that basically never happens. I guess the 2017 Warriors might be like one exception to that rule. Right. But otherwise you just hardly ever see that. And, what really bothered me about it, though, it was the lack of self-awareness. That's where the all bark and no bite stuff comes in. Because along the way, I'm seeing red flags. I'm writing about the red flags. I actually had a big piece about the Lakers, Clippers, and Bucks, how they all showed red flags early in the bubble. And it cost the Bucks. It cost the Clippers. It hasn't cost the Lakers yet. They're still hanging tough and looking pretty good. Um, but the Clippers seem to ignore their own red flags. It was like, hey, let's just talk trash to everyone we possibly can. Oh, people like Damian Lillard. Let's talk trash to Damian Lillard, a guy with basically a hundred percent approval rating. Okay. Well, that seemed ill-advised and we, we kind of learned our lesson. Let's wait three days and then talk trash to Luka Doncic, the world's most popular human being. Let's trash talk him for five straight games and, you know, foul him hard and then, you know, come after him after the fact. And then you get into the second round and things are actually going well against Denver. You've got control of the series. Patrick Beverly couldn't help himself. He had to swipe at Jokic, calling him a flailer, basically essentially saying that he flops and bringing Luka Doncic back into it again, just setting off another round of criticism from people who have just kind of heard it all before from the Clippers and never really seen them kind of put up, right? And I think that adds to the pressure. It has to, because these guys are going to see the responses that they're getting to me, they wound up uh, emerging as the biggest villains in the bubble. And I actually thought it would have been hilarious if they won the title and everybody would be so mad and they were just going to play this kind of spoiler role with like, you know, Steve Ballmer lording over everybody. And, you know, they win the title and kind of ruin the bubble for everybody. But I think you saw it on social media last night. It was Lakers Christmas last night. It was Blazers Christmas last night. It was Raptors Christmas last night. It was Nuggets Christmas last night. And it was just like casual fan who loves when teams choke and like kind of have a comeuppance and things shoved in their face. It was Christmas for them too. And so I do wonder if it's time to kind of go back to the the drawing board a little bit if you're the Clippers and just have a different approach. You know, all this poking and prodding just set them up for such a painful exit. I think it made it worse. And and in some ways, I think the Clippers were actually, you know, all their talk was their, their own worst enemy in some ways. Yeah, it's, it's really too bad that the Clippers have this built-in identity. Like, they don't even have to try to create the little brother identity. It's what they are. They should be the lovable underdog 
just by virtue of the fact that they play in the same city as the Lakers. And they ruined that. They For one year, they had it, remember? Last year, remember? I think. <laughs> was it? Yeah, was it last year where they, or the year where they barely made the playoffs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were like 42 and 40 or something. The most level Clippers team, well, actually, maybe besides the, the guy, the head nod guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Darius Miles and that crew. But an unbelievably lovable team. And this team is the exact opposite, right? Yeah, just built an opportunity here to claim this identity as the team that everyone in the NBA wants to root for, all the fans want to root for. And they made themselves the most hated in, in just a year. It's really quite a remarkable turnaround. They did, they did good work from a marketing perspective. Um, but I'm glad you brought up the Patrick Beverly thing because I just remember watching him come up with words to describe what Jokic was doing. And the minute he said, like Doncic, I just had a bad, bad feeling about where that was going. And it just got worse and worse the longer he talked. And Don't cross the wonder boy. That's a lesson we've taken from the bubble. <laughs> Do not cross the wonder boy. Um, no, it's – can you imagine, by the way, if we had gotten – Mavericks nuggets in an alternate universe like if the Clippers had melted down just a little bit earlier and maybe the Mavericks had slightly better health and Porzingis doesn't get ejected early from that series that would have been a wild matchup maybe we can get them to play it you know sometime later this summer like oh I guess we're we're in the fall now maybe like mm-hmm. mid-October we can just schedule a series between Jokic and Doncic and see, see who flails more see who can uh put up more points in the clutch. That's what I want to see. Maybe they can just, you know, make their own calls instead of actually hiring referees to come on and help them out. Uh, yeah, I just, I have a hard time believing that this would have happened in LA if in a normal situation, if they had home court advantage. I also do believe they would have had a much harder time in Denver if conditioning was an issue here than who's to say what would have happened in the altitude, but. I, th- I think they win the series in five if they've got home court advantage, but you can't even really use that as an excuse because what happens against the Lakers? If you're this disjointed and the Lakers are playing mm-hmm. together and you're playing at that Staples Center and that's seven home games for the Lakers, I actually think their best shot to beat the Lakers was like if they had taken advantage of the bubble and done it on a neutral court, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you really all you have to overcome in that situation is Rondo's brother. If you can withstand his withering insults, then you're going to be able to t- you know take the series at Staples Center You've got Jack to deal with. You've got Rihanna staring, you know, cheering for Caruso. You've got, who knows, uh, the Kardashians might show up. They're not cheering for you either. I mean, the whole thing is, it's you know, it's a, a real cauldron there. Uh, and it's a Laker-heavy Laker, Laker heavy cauldron. So, um, you know, I do think that this winds up being a real missed opportunity for the Clippers. I mean, bottom line, it's kind of Captain Obvious stuff there. But the neutral side stuff should have played to their benefit, and it just didn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that being in the bubble should have worked to their favor, maybe not in this series, but uh, ordinarily, I think the circumstances of the bubble were just created for a team like the Clippers, for Kawhi Leonard, who doesn't like all of the nonsense that comes from, you know, the rest of the NBA that he can just focus on basketball. And the fact that they complained about the circumstances of the bubble more than maybe any other team, that Doc was saying that they had more you know, conditioning issues when the Nuggets had, what, four players test positive for the coronavirus and, like, we're starting five big men for the majority of their seeding games. That That's a little too much for my taste. The losing was one thing, and then the number of sound bites that came out after the game from Paul George and Doc Rivers and even earlier in the series, it just added a little bit of insult to injury, and it's going to leave a bad taste for a little while. There, there are ways to lose with a little bit of dignity. And I, I just don't think that that's what happened here. 
I guess I appreciate the candor because like when some of these teams lose, they just don't want to say anything. And then you're just kind of left to kind of guess or project or piece it together. So I guess from that standpoint, like it's nice that they had some excuses like ready to go kind of built in Were those excuses that people are likely to accept. No, this team spent more than a year preaching health, fitness, load management, and then to turn around you know, in a situation where you had the rest advantage against Denver and be like, well, we just ran out of gas. Like what? How? That was like the whole point of all of this. How did you run out of gas? So it's tough. I mean, look, the bubble is different in a lot of ways. And I I empathize not only with Montrez, as I mentioned earlier, but Lou Williams did say it's been 68 days since I've seen my daughters. And I know the exact amount of time that it's been. And that kind of thing, in theory, the bubble impacts everybody the same. In practice, it doesn't. You know, it just really doesn't. Like, I don't have any kids. I definitely have it easier being in the bubble for three months than writers who do have families and kids who are needing to go home or, you know, something comes out from a health perspective and you're not there to just assist and all of that. Like, it's just a different deal. And so, you know, from that standpoint, again, everyone is is faced with it, but I don't think it impacts every team the same. And, and certainly guys who are dealing with deaths in the family and, or, you know, in some other cases, you know, people who are dealing with the birth of their children and all that you know, on some other teams, I mean, that stuff, it, it's real life. There's no way to, to kind of turn this into a video game and just expect these guys to be able to produce like they normally do when you're in this weird environment. Everything about the bubble is different. It feels like its own planet. It's actually really nice to hear your voice because I feel like you're in like a, a some level of a normal society that kind of keeps me connected, but it's very warping. And I think that you know, this is a very Jim Boylan take for me, but like, I think a lot of the teams that are winning in the playoffs, it's because like, they want to be here. They're not done with the bubble yet. You know, they're into it. Like, let's just keep this thing going. And like you get into that fourth quarter situation, you have to dig so deep and your reward for digging deep is two more weeks in the bubble. So if you're at 68 days without seeing your kids, you're going to be at 82 days without seeing your kids. That kind of stuff wears on guys. It just does. Um, There's no way around it. And to me, the Clippers last night, they had a lot of excuses. They had a lot to say. They didn't seem particularly devastated that they were going home like they had lost their title shot I mean that's when Paul George is saying like well we're never really a championship robust team first of all what like, that's I could not the whole believe talk. that right that's been the whole talk all year but that's kind of what I mean like I think that they sort of broke like you know Boylan would say you know they didn't want to be here completely like they were okay with going home and that's why they're going home I think that's as good a place to any to end it because uh you know the Clippers are going home uh, they did not live up to expectations. I don't think they lived up to anybody's expectations. I think the conference finals were the earliest round that anybody expected the Clippers to be exiting the postseason. And unfortunately, they did not get there for the first time in franchise history. And we wait until whenever next season starts to see if the Clippers can improve upon whatever this year was. Well, their big positive is Steve Ballmer, because you know he's just seething right now I mean think about all he put into this team right and and how high his expectations were and also think about his resources it's the biggest advantage they have you look at Milwaukee they have to call a meeting with Giannis where they like promise to pay him some money oh we're willing to spend the luxury tax Steve Ballmer's like bro don't worry about it we've already crossed that bridge we're going to cross it six more times whatever it takes we're going to do it right I mean he's not going to care about a repeater tax there is no tax that will impact Ballmer in any way you cannot de- design it NBA he will pay it right so that's a huge advantage here 
because he's going to come back motivated and wanting to turn, you know, a setback into a big comeback. And I think, um, you know, same deal for their star level guys. You know, they're going to be licking their wounds from this one for a while. And I think that they're going to want to, um, you know, rewrite their own stories a little bit. They don't want to go out like this. And so I think you put that combination together of, you know, A-list level talent, maybe the best owner in the NBA uh, in terms of commitment and vision and, and what he's willing to do off the court to support his players. I think that makes them, a, you know, a, a real factor next year. They're going to have a fun season to track early next season, no question about it. But I do just wonder, did some of these teams come up and pass them? You know, and I think that's possible. And the, uh, you know, the sands shift quickly in the Western Conference. It's like every year it's somebody else rising, falling. And, uh, you know, I was very confident the Clippers were going to have a nice two or three year championship contention window. And I'm feeling a little bit less confident today than I did, you know, at the start of last summer or, uh, or even a week ago, frankly. Maybe it works in their favor that they're no longer going to be the favorites next year and can uh, once again <laughs> occupy a, something of an underdog perch heading into next season. Uh, but thank That's you so true. Much. I actually agree 100%. That's the new motto. We're back to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you have it. The Clippers are no longer the favorites. They were eliminated from the playoffs, and that's something to look forward to because now they don't have to be the favorites heading into the next season. Uh, but thank you so much, Ben, for talking about the Clippers with me today. Uh, any uh, stories you want to plug from the bubble? People can just go to WashingtonPost.com slash sports. I did a whole column, a written version of this current rant. Uh, if you guys want to check that out. And they can always follow me on Instagram. You know I have to plug that, at Ben.Golliver. So uh, thanks so much for having me. It's great seeing your face, too, by the way. I hope you and your family are staying safe and healthy during the pandemic. And uh, hopefully we're back at Staples Center covering some basketball sooner rather than later. I miss our, uh, our in-game and halftime conversations. Yeah, that would be just the best thing ever to get back to Stable Center. Uh, thank you all for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, and we'll catch you later. <laughs>